guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Forecast Nation, we have a special episode, a lovely episode, one that was close to my heart. I got to talk to Dr. Cien Xiao and Dr. Samantha Winemaker, palliative care researcher and physician, host of the podcast, The Waiting Room Revolution. And what I really enjoyed in this episode is how we can empower patients and their families to really be a voice within their end-of-life journey. How can they take the power back and make sure that they have the highest quality palliative care experience that they can imagine? And so they started this podcast just for that reason, really to empower the people. And you'll hear their story and you'll, you'll feel motivated. You'll, you'll feel encouraged that, you know, that we can put the power back give the power to the people in terms of, you know, deciding how their end of life journey is going to be. Cause it's so important. You've talked about it a few times on the show, but knowing that you have a terminal illness and accepting it completely changes perspective where you can enjoy life. You could take that trip. You want tell that loved one, you love them, tell sorry for any uh, mishaps that may have happened throughout your life. So, so important. Great episode. But before jumping into it, I'm going to tell you about solving wellness. Solving wellness. You know what I'm saying? This is our online virtual platform that we put together to try and reduce clinician burnout, especially post-pandemic. We got virtual fitness classes, yoga, cooking classes, nutrition tips, mindful meditation. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we put it all together so we could create that community and reduce the level of burnout because it's a real concern these days. So sign up at solvingwellness.ca. It's $99 a year or $9.99 a month. But check this, first month is free. Bam! All right. So without further ado, we got the lovely Dr. Samantha Winemaker, palliative care physician and palliative care researcher, Dr. Cien. Seattle, hitting it up. Let's go. Podcast Nation, man, it's been too long since we talked about anything end of life, palliative care, and we got some energetic, enthusiastic, boogie changing <laughs> crew on today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm going to start with Dr. Sammy Winemaker. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. We got Dr. Cien Xiao. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Quido. Hey, anytime. So listen, I know I know I'm coming across a little bit energetic and, and excited because I don't get to talk to too many people that are in the field of palliative care. And as you know, if any, I think this is such an important field 
this is a this is an area where so many of our sick patients could benefit from the the support that we could provide. So this is why I'm this is why I'm hyped. But first, maybe we'll start with Sammy. Like, what landed you in the field of palliative care? Because I'll tell you, I get this question all the time. All the mm-hmm. how are you doing something so depressing? How are you doing this? Like, but I, honestly, people don't realize how how rewarding it could be. So how did, yeah, how did you land in the the field of palliative care? Truthfully, I feel like there's an answer I should say, (laughs) but I'll give you the truth, is that I knew nothing about palliative care um, in, you know, med school. Uh, But I avoided doing another rotation in internal medicine by taking this, you know, selective, they called it, palliative care. I thought, okay, anything's better than internal medicine. And so I ended up doing a rotation in palliative care and never turned back. Like I've never, it was the kind of care that I went into medicine for, and I didn't see it anywhere else in my training. That's why I wanted to be a doctor to do that kind of care. And I just stuck with it. Wow. Wow. It's uh, I, I, I had a similar experience too, but it was with the preceptor Dr. Seeley, I just saw the way he operated, the way he could really bring some a level of calmness and and in the most chaotic situations, that peace that he could bring to patients and their families. And I'm like, wow, we all need to be able to embrace these skills. Um, what about what about UCN? What landed you in terms of doing research in the world of uh, palliative care? Yeah, I mean, it started this. You know, I first thought that I was going to go into medical school because my mother, she had died of cancer when I was young and, you know, it affected the whole family. She battled breast cancer for many years and, you know, it, it, and I was only 10 at the time or when she passed away. So it was something that I thought, you know, I thought I would find a cure for cancer and work in that field. I was a bio major. And as I got older, I realized the system, how the healthcare system is designed leads to the outcomes that we have. And it was not a surprise that we never heard the words palliative care when my mom was was living with and dying from cancer for four years. She died in a hospital, even though she wanted to be at home with her family. We were in the dark the whole time. Um, And I wanted to change that experience. And the thing is, 30 years later, I'm still hearing patients and families say, I wish I had known about palliative care sooner. What is that? Oh, I'm not, I don't want that. I'm not ready for that yet. So there's still a misunderstanding about that, and it can have such a a profound impact on the way the patient, but the families who survive experience the whole journey, and we're missing that in healthcare. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, we're missing missing that in healthcare, and maybe Sammy, you could even speak to some of the an experience or 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 description of how really embracing palliative care within the clinical setting has, can change the the landscape? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, by the time people are referred to see me, it's usually very, very late in their illness journey. Uh, Again, that being unfortunate, uh, because what I have found is that um, by the time I see people, they have probably interfaced with many doctors and many nurses and many different teams. And I'm shocked when I go into someone's home, which is my care setting, I do home-based palliative care. uh, And clearly the patient is in their last couple of months or maybe weeks, sometimes days of life. And I'm baffled by the fact that they really have very little idea about where they're at in their illness journey and what to expect and how things are going to unfold they're waiting for this massive crisis to happen or the ball to drop in some way. And the one thing that I do over and over and over again, which is not what I thought I would be doing, is really helping patients and families untangle the mystery of their illness, where they've come from in the illness, where they're at, and what's going to happen in the future. And you might think that that would cause a lot of anxiety and fear. Uh, to know, you know, what's coming. But 100% of the time, people feel more grounded, more in control, um, more ability to plan more um, like themselves when they have 
open, honest information um, about the future and where things are at. I, I usually start off by saying to people, you know, um, you know, is it okay if we speak openly and frankly here? Uh, and they say, of course. And I say, you know, or would you prefer it with sugar? Uh, no, no sugar. We want everything. If you know something, we want to know. And I say, is it okay to talk about the future? Uh, of course, they say, but no one has invited them into that kind of conversation previously. They've just floated along like a, a boat without an anchor, wherever healthcare blows them, without anyone ever offering them the anchor, which is the big picture view and the future gazing view of their illness. 100% of the time, they feel better. Wow. I hope clinicians, researchers are listening to that as, you know, how empowering it could be to be informed and how often they actually want to be informed. And the reason I think it's important is in my world, whether I'm wearing my palliative care hat or the intensive care hat, I can't count how many times people with a terminal illness have not had these discussions or been offered these discussions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of the time it's fear that will, will, you know, lose that, that, that relationship or that trust with the, with the patient. But as Sammy is saying, it could often be the opposite. You're more trusted. You have that stronger rapport. See, what do you think, like, if we could really scale this, like, you know, at, at a health systems level of really embracing the idea of, of palliative care earlier in people's trajectories, like what, what do you see the benefit? Like, can we see it at a systems level in your opinion? I think that in order to make it a systems level, we have to think of how do we create change? And it has started with the specialists like yourself and Sammy who are doing this care and know what palliative care is. And we are going you know, down the pyramid to try to train family physicians and teach uh, ICU docs or emergency physicians on how to have these conversations earlier. But I think the biggest bang for our buck is patients and families being empowered to be able to understand this approach to care and not even having to use the words, because I think there's a lot of issues with the language and, uh, you know, it's Latin for goodness sakes, um, that uh, but being able to allow them to seek out this approach and suck it out of the system, even without using the words. And that's what we've tried to do in the work that we're pursuing in our waiting room revolution. Taking the power back, people. This is what we were talking about. Changing the book. And I, I, I mean, when I, I was listening to the show, we're going to talk about, obviously, the waiting room revolution, which is killing it. OK, check it out on Apple Podcasts, wherever you feel on podcasts, Spotify. Google cast, you know what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, I was actually thinking long and hard about this for a while because our show, we actually try and cater, we try and cater to, you know, to healthcare providers. So almost like the opposite, where we think that, you know, giving them information uh, often can empower the clinician and their amplifiers. They tend to, uh, you know, if you've got a family doc that buys into how important it is to communicate end of life you know, they're seeing X amount of patients, they're teaching X amount of residents, X amount of, uh, of, of medical students. But at the same time, I'm wondering, is it working? Do you know, like, it, is it working? And, and so this approach of empowering the patients and their families, I don't know, like, it, there might be some, some, some logic to it, especially because you've been, I mean, how long have we been trying to empower clinicians? Like how long we've been doing this. And then, and sometimes you got to think outside the box to, to make the, the magic happen. So is, was that the push? Was it because, you know, trying to approach clinicians, were, were there roadblocks? Like what made you make that pivot? Well, I was, <laughs> so I, I was going to say, I, I, I no, 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 no. It's okay. Cause I do want to answer that question. But um, the one thing that I want to say, I think the most important thing to change is to re is that people understand palliative care is not just end of life. Right. It is an approach to care and it can be used right from the beginning of a diagnosis. And it is about, it's a really holistic point of view. It is not just medical. It is about your quality of life. It is about your whole being. And if we phrase it that way, people would want that much earlier. And I think when, 
you know, we're t- fine. We're talking to healthcare providers mostly, but healthcare providers can be patients too. And they have friends and family who, if we don't understand, if we're not talking the same language and they don't want what we're selling, then we have a big problem. And so I think in some ways in our fight to make it a specialty and to show how important our expertise is, we may have inadvertently, um, you know, sent a signal out to, the, to that we are the only, you know, palliative care specialists are the only people who can do this. When in fact, there are the ABCs of palliative care that everyone should be able to do. And it isn't just complex symptoms, it's information. It's inviting people to express what kind of person they are and what is important to them and what do they hope and fear from. These are simple things that anyone can do. And what I learned was when we were creating an intervention for primary care physicians and Sammy and I were having coffee, this is our light bulb moment. She said, Sian, if we get the family physicians to introduce this, you're still gonna have the oncologists and the specialists who aren't gonna wanna talk about it and the patients and families aren't even gonna want it. So if they don't want it and aren't seeking it out, how are we gonna be successful? So I think we do need healthcare providers to realize that they have a role in providing the basics of palliative care. And again, just uh, helping people understand the future of their illness. That is something I think they will, you know, all clinicians can do, all healthcare providers can do. But we think of palliative care as just at end of life. And I think that's where we've been stuck. And I think that's what is actually really innovative about our approach. Wowie, wowie. Anything to add to that, Sammy? <laughs> um, y- yes, uh, <laughs> I've got lots to add. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the idea of empowering patients and families, caregivers, and their their informal crews, we call them, um, is really important, like CN said, because the healthcare um, teams are having trouble after learning how to have these conversations. Still, they're challenged when to invite people into the conversations. And so you can teach doctors and nurses to the cows come home, you know, how to have serious illness conversation, how to do advanced care planning, how to have goals of care discussions and informed consent, et cetera, et cetera. But what we found was that still in real life, they were still struggling on a day-to-day real-time basis when to invite these, these, um, these conversations. So we didn't want patients and families to feel at the mercy of having a doctor or a nurse that knew how to do it, or perhaps someone who didn't know how to do it. It was going to be serendipitous whether or not they were invited into the conversation based on the comfort level of the nurse or doctor they were dealing with. And that's simply not equitable. So we needed to make sure that we had an opportunity to give patients and families the skills, as CN said, to leech it, to suck it out of the healthcare system, that we are preparing patients and families to come to the healthcare system as new patients and families, as as owning and activated in their own uh, health and illness journey, that it's dangerous for patients and families to make assumptions, uh, just to be passive and good and well-behaved and wait for their trusted doctor to invite them into the conversation. It won't happen. Doctors and nurses assume that if the patients and families wanted to know more, they would simply ask. So we have doctors and nurses waiting for the questions, and we have patients and families waiting for the doctor to invite them into the questions, and we have a cone of silence. And then I meet them in the final weeks, and they're freaked out, and no one's had the conversations. Um, so, So it is their right. It is the patients and families right for this information. They shouldn't have a gatekeeper, um, you know, especially the gatekeepers that haven't been trained properly or feel uncomfortable. So this is about um, equity as much as it is about empowerment. Wow. Cause it, it is true. Like uh, the people that don't have access to these, information to these questions like think about how much misinformation or like myths or concerns that they might have that could be based on like not on in reality they're just they're just wrong and it it could be fear-based it could be you know like i was listening to your 
your show about uh, your, your gentleman that had IPF or uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and thinking that he, he had to drown to death, essentially feel like he had to suffocate to death. And that was what his future looked like. Like imagine living with that fear on a day to day. Imagine living with that fear as a family member, thinking that my loved one, I'm going to have to witness them suffer mm-hmm. as they as they slowly approach death. Like that's mm-hmm. that's tragic. Yeah. In 2020, but, 2021. Uh, most people assume uh, that dying um, is a process that's very painful, mm. or you know. Um, catastrophized by things like suffocation or choking or drowning in your own um, secretions and things like that. And, you know, the number one symptom of dying uh, is fatigue Mm -hmm. and feeling weak. Uh, But everyone's waiting for the crescendo of nausea and vomiting, even if they've never had it before, or they're waiting for the pain to just come over them, like wash over them like a wave, even if they've never had pain before. And so one of the things I realized is, you know, we can learn from the past to help us understand what's going to happen in the future. And I don't think we time travel as much as we should as clinicians. The way an illness unfolds in the early and the middle stages is probably the way it's going to unfold in the later and the end stages. There's usually not new crises that come upon us um, automatically just because our illness is more advanced or we begin to die. Uh, Dying is actually, for the most part, quite comfortable. Yeah, I I think... I think most of the public have no idea unless they've had a loved one, seen a loved one pass. Um, so it's one of the first things that I, when we t- transition to goal, uh, goals of care, going to comfort measures only, for example, is to really, you know, emphasize that this, this we will treat the symptoms. We will make sure mom doesn't mm. feel like she's suffocating or that she's, anxious or that she's experiencing pain and you could quite often in these meetings you could see that like the that just kind of like the relief that exhalation as you're expressing these things it's one i mean to be honest with you it's one of the the blessings that's why i love palliative care is just because you're Mm -hmm. you could there's already a tough situation but you you know you're not only eliminating some of the suffering suffering for the patient, but even for the family, based on how we communicate uh, these things. You know, you make a good point, um, because one of the side effects of uh, being able to provide palliative care for clinicians is um, it protects us from feeling helpless, right? And so we talk a lot about um, physician and nurse burnout, let's Mm -hmm. say, or stress. And it's usually because people feel that they're at the end of what they can offer someone. There's nothing more we can do for you. And, you know, being able to provide a palliative approach allows you to lean in when the patient and family might think there's no other options. You know, palliative care is active care. It is, um, you know, we still provide uh, everything and anything that the patient and family need Um, you know, in the context of their goals of care. Uh, And as a doctor, I never feel like I'm helpless. And that is so protective for me to be able to see this scenario over and over and over and over again. I have journeyed with thousands of people who have been at the end of a progressive illness, and I'm not burnt out by the clinical care because I always know there's something I can do. And usually it's about some kind of filling in the gap of communication. Now I do get burnt out once in a while and I do get stressed once in a while, but it's about the advocacy that comes with it. It's about the politics. It's about, you know, convincing people, healthcare providers that palliative care is not a specialty. It's everyone's skill set, and we need to teach it properly in nursing and med school. That's the kind of stuff that burns me out, not the clinical care. Uh, palliative care helps me to maintain resilience um, when facing dying and death. Yeah. And building on what you said, Sammy, if I can interject, 
it's kind of what you asked, like people think that, you know, working in this field and doing research on it all the time is depressing, but I find it, it, um, it is life affirming because you have to put what is important to you and what your purpose in life and what you want to do with this time you have on earth into a context. And when you're able to sit with families and patients and when they, when I interview them and healthcare providers too, the rewarding part is to talk about who they are as people and what they want to do and what they feel proud of and what we're able to help them still do, um, you know, with the time that they have left. And I think that is where we get stuck because people think palliative care is, you know, when there's an estimated six months or less to live, when in fact, when you get many of these uh, progressive life-limiting diagnoses like chronic heart failure or diabetes or even stage four cancer, which we have amazing treatments for that can keep you alive for four years. It is very important to patients' families to understand the big picture and the context of what this diagnosis means for their life. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, very, it's very unusual that someone will drop dead in the next, you know, few weeks. There's lots of treatments. But if they don't understand the context that that time is running out or time is limited. They cannot make decisions about what they want to do with that time, with their loved ones. And most of the time, as you know, they're, what's important to them is not being in the hospital and sitting you know, with the beeping lights and people coming in and taking their blood draws. They want to be with their friends and family and making choices and making memories and saying goodbyes and saying, I'm sorry, and saying, I love you. And just, and just being, living how they've always lived. So I feel like when, you know, so many of the patients, they have, you know, multiple, there's an average trajectory, we have a sense of it, but they don't, they're missing that context. And that's where they don't get that palliative approach. And they, they miss out on being able to enjoy their life. I, I can't emphasize how, like, this is the part that breaks my heart when, when you see a family that, like, it goes both ways, sometimes they have access to palliative care and, and, they just don't want to accept the the what's happening or sometimes it's not being offered but the thing that's tragic is you know they've missed out on so many important so important moments saying their i goodbyes as you mentioned saying i love yous saying i'm i'm sorry's saying going to vienna because they've always wanted to be able to do that that always breaks my heart when when people try and either they don't have access or resist that that ability or that the resist the the idea that they're they're dying. Um, so I'm curious though, for you guys personally, um, what has it done for you? What is I'll start with Sam. What has it done for you knowing, like working in this field, seeing people near through their their end of life journey, like is there things that you don't take for granted as much? Is there things that you uh, you know, try to process this that you go through to try and embrace life more. What has it done for you personally? Okay, this is another question where I feel like I should answer it a certain way. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, we, we're, we're authentic and raw on the quadcast. So you, get, okay. you, you throw down whatever like you're I feeling. I feel like I should say I live every day like there's, you know, maybe no tomorrow, but that, that's not true. <laughs> I just feel like, I don't know how to say it. I feel like I'm just me. Um, I feel like, you know, when, so maybe, so my husband always says to me, you know, I wonder what this is doing to you. <laughs> All this, you know, death and dying and palliative care, because, you know, we talk about it a lot. Um, so I, I, how has it made me live my life differently? You know, my father passed away, um, you know, about a year and a bit ago. And the way I, um, went through that um, situation and afterwards was very different than the rest of my family. Of course, we're all different people. Um, but, you know, I have faced mortality. Um, death and dying is going to happen. It's going to happen to me one day. Um, and so, you know, I'm not scared of dying. I think that's something that's really um, different for me than a lot of people. I really am not scared of dying. I'm not scared of being dead. Um, you know, I, 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 other than that, I'm just me. I just live my life normally. Um, and I, I do, I do on a daily basis, feel very blessed and touched by the people that I meet, especially the families. Like I said, I, I, 
care for people in their houses. And I cannot believe what we expect families to do. Um, 99% of the time of an illness is spent at home in their care setting, not ours. And so again, you know, I, with no um, interview, with no training, with no negotiation, families are put in the position of being the care team. Um, And so I am amazed by people. Uh, But I'm still just me. I just live my normal life. I don't smell the roses every day. Um, I am a very reflective person. (laughs) I don't know what to say. It's so normal. Death is normal for me. But I think I'm still a lot of fun, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure how fun I am but Sammy this is a good this is a legit answer like I mean yeah you I mean because it's a regular for you 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 live it in the on the day-to-day um, but the perspective also of normalizing death uh, for in so many ways is a gift like I, I mean I think you really expressed it eloquently but yeah that knowing like having that that not having that fear because you you know the realities of it you see it on a day-to-day that's that's powerful yeah I guess it's the things I'm not doing too like (laughs) I'm not getting Botox and fillers and you know all this other stuff you know because you know we're all gonna die I mean I just (laughs) what's the point you know so maybe it's uh you know I just know I'm gonna die one day that's all I can say and uh so I'm living my life and that's that. Absolutely. What about you, CN? Do you, does this change from the work because of the work you're doing on the research I mean, tip? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think from an early age, I understood that we, that time is short, that life is short. And I will just say that from that, you know, that experience of losing my mom all the way forward, it was like, what do you want to do with your life? And so I feel like I have been very purposeful in the stuff that I do. And that's why I chose palliative care. That's what keeps me invigorated because I got into healthcare because I know when someone has a healthcare scare or a life-changing diagnosis, everything is different from that point forward. And I meet patients and families and healthcare providers all the time. And I know, I don't take it for granted that I work in a healthcare center, a cancer center, and I walk down the halls and I know every single one of those faces. I've been there. I know what that's like. So I don't take that for granted. I will just say that it just makes me think about my legacy, like legacy building from, you know, what is the purpose and what do I do? And I just feel much more gratitude that I'm able to do that, but also that I feel fulfilled in my work. So I feel, you know, some people don't have, you know, feel frustrated by their jobs. I love my work. I love what I do because I, it has meaning. And I know when I've talked to people at the end of their life, they, they often say, I wish I had thought about my legacy building earlier. And so, yeah, so that's, I just, I just have a lot of gratitude every single day that I don't take, I try to not take it for granted and I don't smell the roses. I'm a terrible gardener, but, but I, I just, I just feel that I, I'm, you know, trying to make a positive difference in the world. And I, and, uh, and this, this work to make people's experience better will be what I hope to be known for. Absolutely. I, I I love it. The idea of legacy building, I, I think, I don't know if a lot of us think about that early, like what, what, what imprint are you going to leave on, on the world uh, as you exit it? And, um, and I think, you know, just thinking about it alone, will we'll get number one, get the ball rolling and, and two, maybe motivate you because, you know, we, we should be leaving this world a better place. And, you know, I, especially I, having kids has helped out a lot uh, for me personally. Um, you, you're going to hear at least, well, the, the one's home, so you're going to hear the one in the background <laughs> for sure. Um, but, uh, and the other thing I, I forgot to mention, I should have said this earlier, like, obviously, uh, really sorry to hear about your mom, like, uh, you know, and uh, and your your dad, Sammy, like, uh, that's that's still fresh, uh, obviously, in, during especially during a pandemic. Uh, and so, um, yeah, sorry to hear about uh, losing your loved ones. Um, the one thing I would say, too, just, personally when it comes to like i'm not one to smell the roses at all like every day oh i'm so lucky to be like that, that's not the way i operate um but what it's what happens for me and maybe i'm bringing us up bringing this up because maybe 
it happens to you guys too. I say about twice to three times in the, a year, be in the ICU or in the palliative care setting where it just, it's a little bit closer to home. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I remember when we lost a young woman that uh, was, uh, she was a similar age to my wife and she got uh, run over by a car as she was cycling. And, you know, we had to, we declared her, uh, you know, brain dead and telling the family that, and I was just like, got home, hugged wifey a little bit tighter than normal, you know, um, times where uh, I, I always have a super soft spot for young moms when I, when we lose young moms because mm-hmm. of how many people that impacts, you know, there's the kids, there's the spouse, the parents are usually still alive. The siblings are working group. Like that always to me always is a reminder of how short life is. And yeah, I'll hug the kids a little bit tighter, uh, mm-hmm. give a call to my mom or something like that. You know, like those are the times I think I do try and smell the roses a little bit more, but it's mm-hmm. true. Not on the day to day. Like it's just because it's our norm, you know? So mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's, uh, but it's good to think about. Um, what, so we, we talked to, you know, on the surface about the waiting room revolution, the podcast of all podcasts, (laughs) but you know, maybe let's, let's, let's hammer it out. Like what, like, how did it happen? What was the big motivation for it? And how has the journey been? Because I don't get to talk to fellow podcasters too frequently, yo, (laughs) like this is, uh, something else. Um, so maybe CN, you. I don't, maybe you could start off in, t- in terms of like how it developed and, and where it's been going. Well, I would, I would say that it came out, you can tell Sammy and I are very passionate about this and we were frustrated. We didn't want to just produce research articles so that they sit on journals. We wanted to make the world a better place. We wanted to change patients' experience and it wasn't happening only by educating clinicians. And we kept thinking, uh, we know, we've heard stories where people are more hopeful and more prepared. We knew we had to reposition palliative care into something that was optimistic. And how would we do that? And we realized we, you know, especially Sammy, she's thousands of patients and families. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of families and providers. We know the answers. It's sort of, what was the secret of people who had a better story, who had a better outcome, who were lucky enough to get palliative care earlier compared to those who felt like, you know, they, they had a bad ending. And we realized that we, we had to go back and forth. It took us years to come up with, you know, what were the habits and the skills? It's kind of like the seven habits of highly effective people. Well, there are the seven skills of people who are more hopeful and prepared when facing serious illness. And we, we went back and forth and we came up with these seven skills and we said, we need to tell people about this. And we came up with the podcast. Yes. And it's been great. It's been successful. And I, I, once again, I love, I love the fact that you went through the process. Three things. I don't know if it's three, actually. I don't, I don't know why I said three. One, mm-hmm. you realized, which many of us are, that doing re- the research is not enough. In 2021, hell no. You know, you could produce a, a paper in, you know, Lancet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in the back of the uh, journal. And like, it might create zero change. And, you know, really, when it comes to amplifying messages, doing the research isn't enough. That's number one. So grateful for you guys uh, coming up with the conclusion. Two, really thinking about that. I'm a big Pareto's principle, 80-20 guy, when you're looking at, hey, what is that common thread that the successful families and patients are going through and, and going through the process and not just going through, like going through the motions, but actually thinking about what is going to be able to amplify this business. And so I want to commend you for that. And three, what are, I'm not putting you on the spot. What are like the seven, like some, what are the steps that you, that we're talking about to be able to empower the people? Big breath. <laughs> is that, okay. sorry, sorry about yeah. if it's a big question, but or putting no, no. you on the spot. No, we can we can share what this. Okay, so the thing is, is that you know, drum roll. Okay, don't get disappointed because they're really just um, very straightforward, tangible, uh, accessible, normal speak 
kind of things. <laughs> it's the in between the lines kind of stuff that we had to make visible for people. It's not um, magic, but it's magic. Um, and most people have responded positively, not just the patients and families who were our target audience, but, you know, San and I, for a while, were terrified that the healthcare system, our colleagues would think we were whistleblowers or, you know, doing an expose, uh, sharing what's behind the white curtains and going rogue. We've had more healthcare providers say to us, wow, you know, that makes such sense. Like, you know, do you have more of that? And, you know, I love the language you use. It is the language of just normal talking without the power differential between physician and patient. We just tell it like it is. So again, no drum roll needed. It's really just um, straightforward. And we can tell you what the seven um, skills are. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Sian, do you want me to start? Or do you want to start? No, you, you can start. Okay, so the first one is really sets the stage um, again, and I should say that there's no order and one does not have to do number one before number seven. It ends up being a smorgasbord that uh, you just have to um, inhale and uh, you know, digest all together. Um, so the first one is called walk two roads. And the idea behind that one is most people have um, a positive road that they that they um, look through that lens when they're diagnosed with with something. They um, think they have to be positive. The healthcare system are cheerleading along the way, and it becomes a barrier to um, patients and families and clinicians talking about the reality of the illness when we're too positive. So the walk two roads is about hoping for the best and being positive while simultaneously um, accessing information about the truth and the reality of the illness. So hoping for the best and planning for the rest, hoping for the best and planning for the rest and doing that toggling back and forth along the entire illness journey from day one. So you've got all angles covered, no surprises. In that, if you can walk two roads, you will see that no matter what happens in your illness journey, that hope evolves over time. It changes, it changes focus, but you can maintain as hopeful the second before you die um, as you can at the beginning. If your hope is based in reality of where you're at in the illness. So super important for planning, walking two roads, hope for the best, but don't stick your head in the sand. You've got to plan for the rest at the same time. Beautiful. The second one is called zoom out because so often, uh, especially when you have these, you know, precious doctor visits and these precious 15 minute appointments that you get so into the weeds of the illness. How much did my tumor grow? What does my blood test say? What does this, you know, blood test tell me? Uh, you're so sucked in that you've lost the big picture of your illness and they don't understand the context of where they are and what are the expected twists and turns. So zooming out is about uh, being able to understand the big picture of your illness, asking questions so they understand the trajectory. And that is not the same thing as how much time I have left, though it's connected. We, we, we often hear people say, oh, I don't have a crystal ball, which, you know, they don't want to talk about how much time because there's a lot of variation. We get that. But what they're, some, many of them are asking is just help me understand what am I going to expect on the journey and that context making. Right. And you know what? Some a lot of clinicians should do a lot ton of zooming out. To be honest with you, yeah, like get your head out of the sand. You got you know forest between the tree. I, I get yeah. I mix metaphors all the time. Like yeah. forest <laughs> in the woods and yeah, get out of traffic, whatever. But like yeah, just zooming out. I love it. Okay, the third one is called know your style, and uh, just to keep it short, it really is about um, we say the biology of the illness really can't, the science of the illness is, you know, uh, the same for everyone, let's just say, but the individual experience, um, how you go through your illness is very much based on your own personal style. Um, so there are things about you that are uniquely you, um, your coping mechanisms, your personality traits, how much information or not you want, how brave or not you are, how 
organized you, those things will impact your illness journey. And we don't talk about that stuff enough to help guide people. What is your illness going to feel like for you? What's your illness going to feel like for your wife who has a completely different style? And how do your styles complement or not each other? And it's not to change people. It's just to be woke. This is what it's, I can predict what it's going to feel like for you based on all of these things. And so we tell people to mix and match and try to um, exploit other people's natural styles, which will be protective going through uh, um, an illness and which ones are complicated. Again, not changing people, but just eyes wide open. Know your style. And that's a nice segue into customize your order, which is the idea that people think, oh, doctor knows best. And I just want the best standard of care. And what would you recommend, doc? And people just going with the flow. But customize your order is understanding that you can tailor the care choices and the decisions to things that meet your preferences and needs. And putting what is important to you up front and center and making that known will can change uh, the choices that are made. And if you don't put that out there, you'll just sort of go down the standard status quo, the sort of conveyor belt of healthcare which has a sort of flow. And sometimes that is what people want, but a lot of people, you know, want a special latte with all the fixings or they want this on the side or that. Twice. So customizing your order. Yeah. Customizing your order is about tailoring the journey to, to reflect what is important to you. Uh, the fifth one is expect a ripple effect. So that's really a shout out um, to all the people that surround the patient with the illness that no one is on an island when they have a progressive life-limiting illness. Uh, Caregivers or their informal crew, we call them, often get ignored. Um, They get ignored for being important sources of intel about the patient's illness experience between the healthcare visits, but also they get ignored in terms of their own experience of the illness, that their life changes um, automatically and they don't have a roadmap. So the ripple effect is just like, you are a unit of care, not just, and a unit of intel. You're a unit. You're not just a person with an illness. You're a crew. Let me tell you, COVID put a lens on that bad boy big time. Oh yeah. Oh my God, yeah. how important yeah. that unit really is. Dear Lord. Um, yeah, and so many of these keys, Quadra, like taking a step back was us realize was us spending the time of, why was this not happening already? There were these sort of uh, false assumptions, so to speak, that people were making that we, so, you know, this leads to the next one. Like people assume the system is a well-coordinated machine. They assume the left hand and the right hand, you know, talk to each other. This, you know, people who aren't in the healthcare system think that, or I have a healthcare coordinator, but they don't realize it's the hospital coordinator or the home care coordinator. They don't necessarily work for the same organization. So the sixth key is tag your red that somebody in your crew, it could be the patient, it could be a family member, has to play a central role in connecting the dots. There is so little, uh, there. I can't think of one healthcare system in the world where it's got it all perfectly mapped out, where you don't have to know anything and you can just trust, you know, have blind trust in the system. You, somebody has, people who fare better have a project manager, so to speak, of their healthcare team are organized, know what's, you know, what's up and what happened most recently and are able to communicate that, especially at transition points. So tag your it means, you know, don't give that up. You, somebody's gotta be holding the ball at all times. You need a quarterback. I would say who's, yeah. who's, who's quarterback in this bad boy. Yeah. You Tom yeah. Brady or like Matthew yeah. Stafford. I'm sorry. I, don't, I didn't mean to go to football reference. You know, yeah. I caught it. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) The last one is invite yourself. And really it's just about, um, you know, being quiet is, is polite, (laughs) but you need to find your voice, Uh, whether you're the patient or the family, you need to ask, 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 ask. Um, This is your life, your health, your illness. Um, This is going to be your death, your, you know, the survive, your survivors are going to live. You need to find your voice and, and, and ask questions because some doctors and nurses are waiting for people to ask those questions and won't bring them up themselves. Like I said before, because they don't want to make someone depressed or worried, or they think, you know, if someone's not asking, they might not have questions, but everyone's got questions. So we really uh, talk a lot about, you know, finding your voice. 
Uh, so those are the seven. And like I said, you do not have to work through one. It, it becomes like just ingredients that you mix together, you eat it, and then you breathe it. Um, we talk a little bit at the end of the podcast series about what dying looks like in the last year of life. Um, and we tell people you can listen to it or not after, you know, listening to the other ones. Um, and we talk about the myths about dying uh, and we de demystify dying and, you know, we put it right on the table and, and that's that. I love it. I love it. And the reason that, I mean, number one, thank you for busting out uh, the seven steps and articulating them so well. Um, but the more I think about it, you know, having these conversations allows for more normalization of the dying process, having more authentic conversations with our loved ones. Like this is, this is pretty special what you guys are doing. I, I think um, you should be really proud of the, the product that you guys are, 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 are throwing down. Because I think, honestly, if more people were to implement some of these strategies, you know, a lot of people would be in a better place, you know, mentally, emotionally, psychologically with their dying process. So I think this is, this is grand. One thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Sammy. Oh, I just, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, why, why is this so important? Um, one of the reasons is because most people go through these illnesses assuming they're just chronic and they're not going to change and that it's just, you know, they're going to live decades with a particular illness that stays the same for the most part over time. And then when the wheels fall off, people feel like that's a sudden death and dealing with a sudden death um, is much different than the opportunity one has when they know their illness is going to change over time and that um, it's going to get um, more advanced over time. At some point, we can help people understand when they're in the last year of their life, last months of their life, weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And that time is currency for patients and families. It is unfair for us as healthcare providers to turn what should be an expected, anticipated, progressive illness with a natural decline to it um, and turn that into an experience that makes patients and families feel like it's an acute sudden car accident, like the woman you mentioned in the ICU. So many obituaries say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so died suddenly in the long-term care. No one dies suddenly. You know, very few people die suddenly. These deaths can be anticipated. And that time is for patients and families to decide how they want to spend it. Um, and we cannot rip them off by avoiding uh, the reality uh, of illnesses with them. And so you said a lot of your health, uh, listeners are healthcare providers. So instead of thinking about palliative care as talking about the process of dying, it is actually talking about the process of living. Because we are all living today. We Some of us have a progressive illness. We don't know what tomorrow brings. These are the choices we are making in the context of being human beings. And by you talking openly about what illnesses have and what are expected bus stops along the way, it allows them to live more fully and more purposefully. And it is not sad and depressing. Most people tell us they feel more relief because they understand the context and they can, and they can, they can make the choices that are, are right for them. I would say we're doing a terrible job as doctors getting informed consent if we don't couch every single decision in the big picture, the, the forest of the illness. How can someone make a decision about treatment if they don't even know the, the, the scaffolding of their illness and where they're at in their illness? Um, so it's not good enough to say, do you want this chemotherapy because it'll do this for you, and, but the side effects are this. It's this is where you're at in your cancer journey. Um, this is what it'll look like if you don't have chemotherapy, not just what your prognosis is, but this is how things will unfold. People can't make decisions unless they're comparing it to something, the B side or the flip side. And we do a terrible job talking about what if they don't do anything? What's that going to look like? So we need to do better. 100%. I, I, I want to give a personal shout out though. Uh, one of the one of the oncologists that uh, my, my uh, father-in-law's got stage four uh, 
uh, colon. And I was so impressed when the oncologist framed, said exactly what Sammy just said, like truly informed consent. It's crazy. AHS, they have, they record the conversation. So like we could hear it afterwards. I was like blown away actually. Um, Mm. And it was like, that's standard. Um, Mm. So I, I remember just listening to this and I'm like, Kathy, this cat knows this is he's incredible like this communication Mm -hmm. style i I gave him like a virtual high five um (laughs) but uh holy cow like uh, it's Mm -hmm. it's so true though it's you know um i i think of the cert for like from it comes to surgery when it comes to Mm -hmm. uh uh, chemotherapy it's when it comes to dialysis Mm -hmm. we we often don't give that full Mm -hmm. informed consent that full info it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 uh, it's um what do you call it? tainted with our own biases uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. so uh, yeah. you know i think it's a great point to bring up yeah and, and I if think- i i was gonna say if i know if you don't like metaphors i mean what sammy's talking about is just illness understanding yeah. and i think you know that you need to assess the patient's illness understanding and if there are gaps you can provide illness education if that's what they want you can ask permission to do that um, but the, I think the thing, the light bulb was we have trained clinicians to be able to have excellent communication skills, probably like that clinician you were talking about in Alberta, who had great skills to have the conversation. And what I realized as a non-clinician, maybe, is that we can train patients and families to lead and initiate the conversations in a way so that they get these answers. This is not rocket science. This is conversations. They can ask, what will the big picture of my illness look like? Can I, I'm the kind of person who likes a lot of information and I don't, I know palliative care is not just the last six months of life. And I know there's lots of time and lots of things to hope for, but I also want to be prepared. So can we talk about what are the, the sort of milestones and, and big picture things that are going to happen as I make decisions? These are things that patients can at least invite themselves to the conversation and allow per, and give permission to healthcare providers to be more open and honest if that's what they needed. Wow. I love it so much, bringing the power back. Before I forget, too, um, we've we've had shared guests of actually uh, uh, Julie Drury who was uh, did an episode of COVID related one. She's amazing, and her story like I learned so much from her. She made me uh, inspired me to you know really try and get more of that patient family engagement. And then my uh, former boss Jose Pereira. He was, uh, I haven't heard that episode yet, but uh, I'm sure it was a gooder. He's uh, he's really um, informed, educated, eloquent. So I, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see some of the guests that you guys have had. So guys, thank you. Thank you for having this amazing discussion. It was so rewarding. I know we're, you know, it's got kind of in an echo chamber right now, but Sien, Sammy, be able to have that conversation on why what we're doing is so important. What you guys are doing, especially engaging patients and families to empower them to um, really, you know, advocate for their own uh, end of life journey, um, I, I think is tremendous. So I really want to thank you. Where can people listen to the waiting room revolution? And by the way, if you need a new intro, I'm I'm ready for it. Wait, yeah. woo, revolution. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, they, you know, we have a website of that name, waitingroomrevolution.com. You can find the episodes there, and we are on every platform on how you get your podcast. So they they can subscribe. And our seven keys is what we started with our first season. If you go right, to, you have to go right to the beginning to listen to our first ten episodes. That's what we, Sammy and I, wanted to to get out and say, but. As we move forward, we have invite. We've just expanded the conversation because of the overwhelming response, and we have lots of guests, including yourself, coming out uh, to to uh, to expand our, our thinking and to see how those keys apply to different settings. And we hear from patients and families and healthcare providers, administrators, everyone. Um, and it's been it's been such an exciting journey for us. I definitely, Sienna and I need um, a new style. <laughs> after being on this podcast we are so um boring i would oh, say i love, being I on the love show. it no no we, you guys were great you guys feeding off each other you guys were like i can't so we're gonna to... need to we need to spice it up so. oh no we, I... we're, we're gonna be plugging this hard when i don't know when my episode comes out but we'll be plugging it hard and you'll see they threw down 
Right, <laughs> but it's going to be episode number one. I'm going to call it out right now. Okay. It's going to be number one. That's a roll. The, uh, I will say that our fall season is coming out. Like we, we recorded them in the summer, as you know. Um, you're you're going to kick off our season three. I'm like, that was such, that was awesome. Yeah. You're, you're kicking off uh, our, our season three. So, mm-hmm. guys, I'm doing a real kick. I'm doing a real kick. As a, oh, but I'm not very you flexible. Stiff, you have oh. stiff hamstrings. Oh, you, you notice, eh? Oh, I, my <laughs> flexibility is horrible, but I work on it I, every night through my hamstring stretches, y'all. You need you to do Pilates, Pilates. Yeah. I, I that to- is one thing you can learn. You can, yeah, I know my, I have like an 85 year old uncle and he can lie flat. He runs marathons. Like he can touch his toes, right? I can't, I can barely touch my oh knees. My God. Yeah. You just stretch every day. You, you know, I think that's how, yeah. uh, that's what they, they do for those Kung Fu movies, you know? Yeah, just- no, I'm, I'm almost there. It's, it's hockey. We, we, we never uh, stretch. You're not hockey. almost there. You are not almost there. Oh, check there. this. I- check this. I know this is digressing a little bit on the show, yeah. but hold up. Hold up. Okay. Okay. He's uh, doing something now. He's, uh, I'm scared. Hands, hands up. Okay. He's adjusting the camera. I think he's going to do a kick to show us how straight his leg is. Oh, okay. So he's. Oh, that's excellent. That's incredible. He touched his toes. I'm telling you, people, I've been ah. working on this. I haven't done my hot yoga because, you know, things were closed, but I'm, I'll get there. I'll get Good. There. Impressive. Impressive. Thank you. <laughs> what a way to end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, guys, well, Thank we're going to do this again. I know we will in the future. Thank you, Thank so, you much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Have a great summer. Rest you of too. your summer. Bye. Thank you, Quadro. Yo, tell me that episode wasn't the money. Yo, for real. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. If you're a healthcare provider, jump on that solving wellness bandwagon. Solvingwellness.ca. Once again, we'll continue to change that boogie. Leave that five-star rating on Apple iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And yo, thanks for listening. It means the world to us. Stay fresh.